Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to one and all. I trust that you are, well, I don't see that you are. I was going to say wearing your Father's Day tie and uh, going to blow your nose on your Father's Day handkerchief and other necessary accoutrements of having gone through Father's Day. Father's Day was actually created by Christians in North America um, about a hundred years ago. There's a little quarrel between two groups. One did it in 1908, the other did it in 1909, but they were both, they're not really quarrelling, but they're both church groups, Christian people, who had this particular concern for fathers and for celebrating fathers and their contributions to life. It's really appropriate, of course, that Christian people will create and celebrate Father's Day because we are the people who worship God as our Father. The Lord's Prayer commences, Our Father. It's not a Muslim prayer, it's not a Hindu prayer, it's not even really a Jewish prayer in one sense, although it was a Jew who taught it to us, namely Jesus Christ, but it is a profoundly Christian prayer, Our Father. And indeed, our Bible readings speak of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fatherhood is really important. Fathers are not simply parents, interchangeable and undoubtedly inferior to mothers. Fathers bring a distinctive contribution to parenting that makes a great difference to children. In the June edition of the very liberal North American magazine called The Atlantic, there was an article on what a difference a father makes written by the prominent American sociologist uh, Bradford Wilcox, who was the co-editor of a book recently of essays on this very subject of gender and parenthood, the biological and social and scientific uh, uh, perspectives. In this article in The Atlantic, he records and summarises four kinds of differences that have been observed in the ways in which fathers father. For fathers don't just parent, fathers father. And he picks on these four. They play with their children differently to the mothers. They encourage risk-taking differently to the mothers. They protect their own children differently to their mothers and they discipline them differently to their mothers. That's not to say mothers don't do those four things. They, in fact, do those four things, but they do them quite dramatically differently. I had to laugh in our outline that uh, other people had created, not I, because I've been away at a conference all week. But if you just go to the middle of the outline, the centrefold, that's where the sermon is, and the Bible readings will be there. But if you just turn over the page once, in one of our little children have given us this lovely phrase, I love my dad because he likes to have rumbles. It's marvellous, really, because... All this scientific investigation and inquiry about the nature of fatherhood is that they fathers like to rumble their children and that's something different. And I think to myself, you know, we've done this massive amount of research but you only have to check one child from Cathedral Kids. They could have told you that. We, the government could have saved an enormous amount of research money just by checking out the children. But what Bradford Wilcox does is he compares some of the outcomes of children with the quality of their relationship with their fathers. And so on a 
complex thing that's beyond our concern today. He divides fathers into three groups, those with very good relationships, those with fairly middling relationships, those with bad relationships, and then compares the three with those who don't have a father and who are raised by a single mother and looks at the outcomes for the different children raised by these different contexts. And he shows that the father relationship is a key factor and that single mothers, wonderful as they can be, do not do as well in raising their children as intact biological families with a father and the mother. Now remember, we're talking generalisations here. And at this point, it's very important because there are some single mothers who are the great champions of the universe and without father have done a job way in excess of the best of fathers do. We're talking of generalities. When you look overall and see which is what outcome comes from having families of this kind, this kind, this kind, and the like, and whether it makes any difference. Well, here's a graph that he shows uh, of the four kinds. Uh, the, I'm almost colorblind, so it's really hard for me to say to you, but the one on the extreme right as you, uh, left as you look at it, which I think was blue, uh, is the really good fathers, the brown is the uh, not so good fathers, the green are the, are the really unpleasant relationships with fathers and the mauve, well that's the colour of the single mothers. And here on this particular graph he's, he's looking at the subject of delinquency, he says boys who enjoy high quality relationships with their fathers are about half as likely to be delinquent compared to boys being raised by single mothers or by fathers in intact families who only have low quality relationships with them. One of the key indicators for the outcome of delinquency has to do with the quality of fathering. Or again, looking at the girl subject. And uh, on this one, looking at the subject of teenage pregnancies, unwanted teenage pregnancies that is. And again, you see the stark difference between those who come from fatherhood where fathers have a quality relationship as opposed to those who are growing up in families of a different character. The conclusion, he says, is teenage girls living with their father in an intact family and enjoying at least an average quality relationship with him are about half as likely to become pregnant as teenagers compared to girls living with a single mother or who only have a low quality relationship with their father in an intact family. Or again, the, the third graph when he's looking here at the subject of depression, another great concern for outcome of our children. And again, you will see the importance of the father in this regard. Indeed, this one, you'll notice that the, the poor quality relationship with father is a bigger factor than an absent father at this point. It's a great concern. And the conclusion he draws is for both boys and girls, a high quality relationship with dad is associated with less depression. And so the book and the article goes on showing you factor after factor, outcome after outcome of the difference of having quality relationships with father. None of this should surprise us or really shouldn't need to be demonstrated statistically. It's intuitively obvious. But fathers have come under such a sustained attack over the last generation that we now have to have research to establish what our little cathedral kid already knows. Fathers are important. However, the evidence is mounting not only of the importance of intact families, 
instead of broken families or blended families for the well-being of children, but also the importance of fathers as well as mothers. For the father brings this different style, different form of parenting to their children. Uh, Kevin Andrews, and this is not a political plug, but Kevin Andrews, who is the shadow minister at the moment for families and the like, produced a big book called Maybe I Do, which I think has got a dreadful title, because in the wedding vows it's I will, not I do. However, I didn't ask me beforehand, but this is a book that, that it's one of those tomes where he's collected up research from around the world on the issues of families and, and raising and parenting and the like. And in it, one uh, report that he speaks of says, girls apparently do not learn appropriate relationship skills if they grow up in families without their fathers, even, in the family structure is, even if the family structure is stable. And this morning's newspaper, I saw reports from the University of Western Australia of a similar review, academic review, of fatherhood and parenting. And the article commences... Children with involved fathers have better social skills, more successful relationships, stronger self-esteem, more self-control and higher grades than those who do not. They are less, also less likely to be overweight, suspended from school or bully, take drugs, engage in risky sexual behaviour or crime. I mean, fathers matter. And it's about time we said so. I don't want to make anybody feel extra guilty in fact, one of the rules of life at our household was we were never allowed to read more than one book on parenting in any 12-month period because we couldn't cope with the guilt of doing that. One was more than enough for an annual guilt trip and it's so easy to make any parent here feel very guilty. It's also very easy to make all of us feel inadequate or sorrowed about our family situation. I'm not aiming to do that. I'm talking in the generality. As a society... We must promote fatherhood. Fatherhood has great outcomes and great results. We are not just parents. We are fathers and we are mothers. Mothers do magnificent things. Come again, May, you'll hear me tell you how magnificent mothers are. Come spring and September and I'll tell you how wonderful fathers are. God has created us as mums and dads because he knew what he was doing. And we need both. And we are greatly benefited from both, each with its own contribution. So with this background to the importance of fathers, let's think again about God as father. You see, God is our creator, but he's not our father. He made us, but he didn't beget us. He didn't propagate us. God is not the father of humanity. God creates Adam to be the father of humanity. It's not that everybody is a member of God's family as if God is the father of all humans. That is not what the Bible teaches. God is our creator and God is our God. He is not our father. However, he was Israel's father. As we saw in our first reading, and you'll see the readings are all there on the left-hand side of the outline. You don't have to go back to them. Just look across to the left-hand side of the outline in the centrefold and you'll see that when Moses is told to go to Egypt and to tell the Pharaoh to let God's people go, verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. For God has adopted Israel to be his son, his firstborn, his heir. And as he has adopted the son, he insisted that Pharaoh should release his son from slavery. Within the Old Testament, we find not only is Israel the nation God's adopted son, but in particular the king of Israel is the son of God. The king of Israel, God's adopted son. And this is the background to our second reading about the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God identified Jesus as his beloved son. You look there in Mark chapter 1 verse 11 and the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. For God is Jesus' father. In two ways. Firstly, from all eternity. God is three persons in one, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God the Father and God the Son have been living for all eternity in the relationship of Father and Son. So that when God the Son became a man, he continued as God's one and only Son. But secondly, God is Jesus' Father as the Messiah. For just as Israel was God's adopted son, so its king in particular was the son of God. And so the Messiah, who was the king of Israel, the perfect king of Israel, was to be the son of God. Let me help you by clarifying some terms, because we have some, some Bible terms that once you hear and understand them, open up all kinds of Bible reading, makes it much easier. You see, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word. It was the king, the anointed one. The Greek form of the same word is Christ. So Messiah equals Christ equals the king. And the king, the Messiah, the Christ, will be the son of God. And so Jesus, the king, the Messiah, was the son of God. And when Jesus goes to his baptism, when God says, you are my beloved son, he is saying, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the King of Israel, you're the one that we've been waiting for for over a thousand years to come. Yes, he was God the Son, but at that moment, the voice from heaven is identifying him as the Son of God. For God was not talking of Jesus' eternal relationship with his Father, so much as his role on earth as the Son of God. Let me help you again with trying to explain this, because it's really a simple trick but until you get it, some Bible reading gets complicated. You see, God the Son became the Son of God. You can see why we get confused, don't you? But God the Son means one thing, Son of God means a different thing. See, God the Son means God, the second person of the Trinity. God from all eternity. God, that's what God the Son means. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son. But the Son of God means the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. So although you've got the phrase son and God, God and son, which way you put them is very important. And God the son became the man Jesus. And when God the son became the man Jesus, then Jesus became the Christ. And because he was the Christ, he was the son of God. And so you see why the heading is, in Jesus, God the son became the son of God. Simple enough, isn't it? 
Yeah, just ponder at this for a moment. You see, I'm a son of God, but I'm not God, in case you hadn't noticed. I had. My family has. Anybody with half a brain could. I'm not God, but I am a son of God. And so the phrase son of God doesn't mean God. God the son means God. Son of God. Well, Jesus was the son of God. After all, there was nobody better, more suited to become the son of God than the one who was God the son. But he became the Messiah, the Christ for us, so that God becomes our father. Here's the exciting news for us, friends. This is actually really important, exciting news for us. You see, we are not God's children, but his creatures. But Jesus came into the world so that we could become something more than God's creatures, so that we could become God's children. This is an extraordinary thing, so that we may know God, not just as our God, but as our Father as well. See, one of the most telling book titles is that of a Pakistani Muslim woman who became a Christian and called her book, I Dared to Call Him Father. It's an extraordinary thing for someone in the Islamic world to dare to call God Father. In one sense, the title says it all. As soon as you see the title, you know that this is, this is a Christian. This is someone who has broken into Christianity. This is somebody who has come to understand what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is about, to dare to call God Father. For Muslims do not call God their Father any more than Jews do. It's in Christianity that the fatherhood of God is brought to the fore. And more than that, it's Christians who become the children of God. So look at our third reading from John's Gospel there, chapter 1, where John is speaking about Jesus coming into the world and not being accepted. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For this is what Jesus came into the world to do. He was born into this world to rescue us from slavery and to make us sons. Just as Moses went back to Egypt to rescue the people out of slavery and for the nation to become the firstborn son of God, so Jesus comes into the world to rescue us out of our slavery that we might be redeemed and freed to become his sons. Which is what our fourth reading from Galatians is about. Verse 4, you see there, chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, that's to rescue out of, to pay, to purchase out of slavery, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. For we are all enslaved to sin and to death, and therefore condemned by God's law. Now, have you ever noticed how hard it is to turn over a new leaf? Have you ever noticed that you don't actually have to teach your children to sin? Most of us spend all our time with our children teaching them not to sin. Make sure you share your toys. Make sure you're nice to, the, to your sister. Don't hit your brother. 
Make sure you share the last piece of cake with somebody else. Make sure you wait, you say thank you to people. You have to instruct your children always to do the right thing, but you never have to instruct your children to tell lies. Do make sure that you tell lies, won't you? Don't tell them the truth, whatever you do. I've never heard parents teaching that. And you know what? I've never needed to have parents teach that. Somehow inherently built within the framework of the human constitution is this capacity for sin. It's just what we are, self-centered. We are in this slavery. We're not free to do as we wish. But Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has rescued us out of slavery just as much, indeed more, than Moses did out of Israel, out of Egypt. And he's brought us into the family of God. For in Jesus, Christians are now the adopted children of God. God becomes our father. But it's even better news than this. He becomes our father in two ways. Firstly, by adoption. He has chosen to accept us into his family, friends. That, I mean, that's just an enormous privilege, isn't it? To be welcomed into God's family. To be welcomed in as one of God's children. Chosen by him to be one of his. You see it there in Galatians 4, the end of verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's an extraordinary thing. My, my father grew up in, in abject poverty in the early part of the 20th century uh, with a very, very large family of, 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 of uh, 11 or 9, depending whether you count before or after early deaths, uh, brothers and sisters, and moved from pillar to pillar. In his Years of primary school, which is the only schooling he had, he went to 35 different schools. He grew up in one of those kinds of families. And he told me often of the two families who welcomed him in, who accepted him in, whom he could call by and just be part of that family. It wasn't a formal adoption or anything like that, but the difference it was that one of these ragtag kids of the Jensen tribe, and they were really ragtag. You, you, you should meet my uncles and aunts. Well, never mind, you shouldn't. They were a rag. But in amongst all these wild kids from this poor widowed mother, this little one was accepted in, was adopted in, and was the and extraordinary, he said. He worked out later. They were the two Christian families that he ever came across. And part of the way he knew of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and pursued that and raised me in Christianity was the fact of those two families who adopted him in. If you've never been an outcast, if you've never been without family, if you've never had alien and difficult family life, if you've never been through... Adoption is something you say, oh yes, well that must be all right for you. But if you've been an outcast, if you've been in difficulty, if you've had struggles, if your family didn't love you, the idea that you could be adopted in to somebody else's family, that these people would treat me like I was a son. God has adopted sinful people like you and me into his family. That is terrific news, but I tell you, there's something better. It's hard to work out what there is that's better than that, 
But it's not only that he adopted us as children, but also has given us rebirth. We have been born again into his family. Look there at verse 6 of that passage. You see, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son, and a son then an heir through God. See, this is what John was writing about in that third reference there about being born again, being born of God. Not born by blood, not born by the will of men, not human birth, spiritual birth, spiritual rebirth. Being born again was not something created by an American politician. It was not something created by an American televangelist. It was Jesus who said, you must be born again to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus who taught it and it's Jesus who brought it. And that's what the last of our readings is about in 1 Peter chapter 1 there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been born again through Jesus' death and resurrection. See, Christians are those who have been born again by the Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to become the children of God, their Father. We Christians, we're not more moral, we're not more religious, we're not more educated, we're not... We Christians are not better. We Christians are forgiven sinners who have been adopted into the family of God by spiritual rebirth so that we now have a relationship with God, not as our judge and condemner, but as our Father who loves us. What about you? Do you know God as your Father, as your Heavenly Father, who loves you so much as to have sent His Son for you? Do you know the wonderful news of sins, Forgiven, completely, absolutely, totally, utterly washed clean. Do you know the transforming experience of the Spirit of God bringing in new life so that you can start all over again, this time with God as your Father and Jesus as your Saviour and Lord? Let me try and summarise then the logic of what's being said here. We are not God's sons, but his creatures. And worse, enslaved by sin. God chose to adopt Israel as his son, especially Israel's king, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. When God the Son became Jesus Christ, he became the Son of God, the Messiah, and he did so to redeem the slaves so that we could become the sons of God by adoption and by rebirth. Now, if that's not the best Father's Day news you've ever had, 
I don't know what is. That is the great news. See, it doesn't matter whether we have an earthly father or not, whether we're raised without him or whether he is like my father, of course, now long dead. It doesn't matter whether my father on earth has been hard and cruel or has been loving and tender. Yes, it does matter in terms of the outcome to life. Yes, it's measurable, the difference that good fathering and bad fathering has upon us. But in the end, you see, in Christ Jesus, we have a heavenly father. And yes, we can even see the difference. For what a difference a father makes. See, it's our father who protects us and provides us, disciplines and trains us, corrects our mistakes and encourages our endeavours, rewards our efforts. The attitude of our father to us is one of the most important attitudes we can ever have. It's It's the certainty of knowing that you're loved and you're valued, not because of your efforts, but just because he's your dad just because you're his son or his daughter. It's the certainty of knowing that you're safe because he's always there for you, caring for your needs, listening to your problems and anxieties, that there is someone to go to when you need to. Now, if human fathers can have such an effect in reducing depression and delinquency and life's bad choices, how much more our heavenly father will care for his children. Life without a loving father is being at last recognised as second best, if not worse. And some of us could have told the experts a long time ago, for so sadly we have experienced life without a caring father. And some of us could tell how good life is because we've experienced life with a very loving, caring father. Christians never live without a loving involved father for we know the love of the heavenly father who has cared for us even from before our birth who has wanted us before our rebirth who has brought us to new life and who will listen to our prayers our cares our troubles our anxieties whatever they may be Do you know this heavenly father? Do you know him as your father? When we pray our father, do you include yourself in the hour that he is my father? The Lord Jesus Christ came to die and rise again that you can come into his family. How? How do you come into his family? Well, it's by praying. Very simply prayer. By praying and asking God for forgiveness and rebirth. So let me close the sermon by praying exactly that kind of prayer. Let's pray. And if you'd like to pray with me in this prayer, then just pray in the quietness of your own mind to your heavenly Father. 
Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I do need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler and you as my father. Amen. And friends, if that is your prayer, you want to be in that family of God, you will be. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again to make you one of his.